Hi, welcome back to Craft With Me. We're still going through Pimp My Fiction as an overview text. And today we're on the first real chapter after the introduction called Structure Your Novel. As always, I've read through the chapter and gone over the main points and sort of taught myself what the contents of the chapter are. It's pretty simple. Uh, today's episode will also have a pretty simple prompt included in it. Before we get into that, just wanted to give a brief podcast episode. We are planning for launch soon, so this should be the last or close to the last episode recorded before the actual launch meeting. All the other episodes will happen live, so you'll be able to post live comments when they're up, and I'll make sure to read the emails and comments and respond to them as much as possible on the air. If you do send us an email at vippodcasts at gmail.com, or if you do post a comment on any number of places where you post this, I will do my best to respond to them. I can't promise that we are going to respond to every single one but we're gonna do our best to respond to as many as possible it just depends on the volume of comments questions concerns that come in so this part of pimp my fiction is about structuring your novel it goes over several basic ways to do so really basic not anything terribly complicated nothing that's gonna require hours of study meant to be understood immediately. Structure is not in and of itself complicated. It's everything you structure a book with that can be complicated, right? In the same way that when you think about it, building a house isn't complicated. You kind of know what you need, right? A floor, walls, roof, doors, windows. It's basically it. But all the other stuff gets really complicated, right? Obviously, you need, like, a stove and carpets and a fridge. And obviously, you should not be hiring me to build a home for you. But you need stuff inside the home. You need utilities to be hooked up. You need all that stuff to make it livable. You can have a shelter that's not really livable. Or you can have a livable home. So just understanding how to structure something is understanding how to build a shelter, but that doesn't make your novel comfortable or livable. Nonetheless, it's something you have to learn how to do before you can fill it up with other stuff. Some of these can also be used for short stories. I mean, this chapter is geared for novels, but... The first one we're going to look at is just a three-act structure, and you can use a similar structure for short stories just to condense it down because you're doing a lot of the same stuff, just a lot shorter, right? You have the rising action, and then you have the climax and all of that, but it's just in a shorter setting. It's not, or excuse me, a shorter piece. It's over 5,000 or 10,000 words and not over 100,000 words or 50,000 words. So that is something that you can use for things that aren't just a novel. You can do novellas, things like that. The first structure we're looking at is just the really simple three-act structure. Um, Just beginning, middle, end. Everyone who's ever 
been through the public school system in just about any country in the world and most private school systems knows that a good piece of writing is supposed to have a beginning, middle, and an end, whether it's a piece of fiction or whether it is something that is written as an essay or as a nonfiction book. The classical three-act structure is something that we don't necessarily use quite as much anymore. I would say the first act tends to be more action-focused and more uh, less focused on exposition. Whereas the classical definition here, right from the book, which took it right from Wikipedia, says the first act usually provides exposition, which establishes the main characters, their relationships, and the world in which they live. I corrected it for grammar there. Later in the first act, a dynamic incident occurs to confront the main character whose attempts to deal with the incident lead to a second and more dramatic situation. A lot of stuff I've read that's been written in the last few years seems to condense all that, so you have the action starting really fast, maybe in the first couple of scenes, as you're still getting to know the character and the conflicts with the other characters and things like that. Still the same sort of structure to the first act there, but not so focused on exposition. So it is changed. There's a point in the first act called the first turning point, according to the book, but you can call it all sorts of different things. It is essentially the end of the first act, after you've had the inciting incident and after the character knows, essentially, life's not going to be the same, they have to do something, and importantly, they know that they're on the start of an arc that's going to change them, even if that's not expressed in the book, right? It's a point where you're not necessarily saying the protagonist has no choice, but... This is something that they're doing. Either they've made the choice or they, you know, they can't turn back now. And they're throwing themselves into the situation or being thrown into the situation. Usually it's better for the protagonist to, to show some agency there, but that's not always. I've heard that a bunch. I've heard that in a bunch of different forums and a bunch of different podcasts, but there are plenty of very successful books where it feels more like the protagonist is forced into doing something. However, they're still forced into doing something. So that's the key point to remember there. You don't want them just being passive. And that first major action, doing something, getting on that arc and riding the arc until the end of the story, is going to be your first turning point. The uh, inciting incident's going to be included there. Sometimes the inciting incident takes a while, but it will always be included in that first act if you're using the three-act structure. You don't ever want to move on to this middle of the book without the inciting incident in the beginning of the book. I'm not talking length-wise here. I'm not talking the middle of the book has to start on page 200 out of 300 or whatever, or 100 out of 300. It's just the conceptual middle, the plot middle, the narrative middle. You cannot go into the meat of the story without first getting the reader to care. The reader has to have an inciting incident and a turning point to care. The character, the main character, also has to care in their own way, which usually means they have to act or be forced into acting in order to get to the second part. The second act is referred to in Pimp My Fiction and in scores of other books as Rising Action, and it's where the protagonist is trying and often failing to resolve something. You want the protagonist in most stories to succeed. Not every story. 1984 is a great example for, of a story that 
the protagonist does not succeed in. There are other lesser known examples, but just to stick to the classic literature we should all be trying to copy, 1984 has a protagonist that ends up failing and not caring that they're failing by the end of it because that failure has been so total. They're changed. Their arc is completed, right? They're never going to be the same again, but they don't ultimately succeed. So success is not necessary, but definitely trying to solve the problem initiated in Act 1 is, is necessary. You usually want to set up some try-fail cycles. You know, if they try once, they fail, and maybe they get in a worse situation. Then they try again, they still don't succeed. Maybe they almost succeed, but not quite. And then the third time, they finally are able to get what they need, not necessarily what they want. If you're writing military fantasy, maybe the city your protagonist is in is under siege and they have to break out and run across the country to get a relief force, and they are the only person that is able to do so. And they're given a letter, and the first time they try to break out, they try to get, scale the wall, and they're knocked over by a guard, and maybe they break their leg, and now they can't even walk. And so obviously that's a failure. So the second time, they try to hide in a wagon, and they're caught by the guard. So now the guy's got a broken leg and is in prison. So now they're in an ever-worsening situation from where they started. Third act, they find a secret hidden compartment in the prison, Count of Monte Cristo style. Maybe there's an old person there who's been whittling away at the wall for years and shows the protagonist how to escape. And then they escape with the letter and, and get to the city to tell them about the siege and deliver the relief force. Just an example, but the point is that not only is the protagonist failing, but the stakes are getting higher because their situation is getting worse every time they're failing. That's the essence of the second act. Um, there Maybe there's some montages, for lack of a better phrase there, where they're learning some new skills. If there's a mentor, which we'll get to in a bit, then maybe the mentor is in there teaching them. They're sort of gaining comprehension of what's going on, gaining knowledge of the situation piece by piece. And that will begin to not only change their knowledge of what's going on in the core story, but also their identity. So the guy breaking a leg, maybe the leg is amputated. That would change his physical identity. Or maybe being in the prison, if the protagonist is a privileged little POS, changes their entire perspective on the poor and oppressed in their city and maybe the besiegers are a mob of poor and oppressed people who've had enough. So there's a lot of things you can do to put the protagonist in a worsening situation that changes their perspective at the same time, and that in turn should change their identity. And it's also important to note that this is not a monologue thing. The protagonist is not just going to be sitting there in a jail cell changing his mind on his own. That's why you usually have mentor characters, maybe foil characters even. Co-protagonists is a word that Pimp My Fiction uses. Co-pros, co-tags, however you want to phrase it. I kind of like it. I may use it uh, throughout this podcast. Co-tags. I'm just going to shorten it to co-tags. You may want some co-tags in your army of characters so that the protagonist has something or someone interacting with them. 
they're not realistically going to just change on their own. It's going to be through interactions with people, with the environment. The second act can't really be ended until we've reached some point where the main character's changing, changed. Their arc is definitely on the downswing. So if we're still at the point where the protagonist's leg is broken, but he's determined to get out of the city and get to the king, and he hasn't learned about the besieging army, why they're, why they're laying siege to the city or anything like that yet, and therefore his mind hasn't been changed, then we're not ready to go to Act 3 yet. We want to make sure that all that stuff is introduced in Act 2. All that juicy conflict information that will help resolve everything, we want that in the second act. Before we move on to the third act, which is the resolution of the story, obviously, and the resolution of any subplots. I'm paraphrasing the text here. You're going to have a climax scene. You're going to have a denouement, which is the end of the story where loose ends are tied up and there's action and maybe somebody dies and secrets are finally revealed, questions are finally answered, all of that stereotypical stuff. And the protagonist is not just going to have a new sense of who they are or be a different person coming out of the end of the third act, but a lot of the supporting characters are going to be that way too. It's important that every character has an arc, and the big challenge in the third act, for me personally as a writer, and probably for a lot of other people, is making sure you don't leave out any characters, making sure that they all have an arc. That arc may not always be dramatic change. If there's a crusty old fisherman living in that city who's a little peeved because it's a landlocked city, and he moved there because of his husband, and his husband is now dead and he really doesn't feel like he has anything to live for anymore, his arc is not going to completely change. He's probably still going to be in that landlocked city at the end of the book. So there's only so many things you can change with that character. Maybe the crusty old fisherman finds a new purpose for living because he's inspired by this guy with the broken leg trying to improve his situation. He doesn't really know what's going on, but he eventually agrees to help and sneaks the guy out on his last fishing wagon, penniless and still crusty. The fisherman then dies at the end of the novel or just goes back to his hovel or something. He's played an important role in the protagonist's story, and his perspective has changed about what his life can be like, but he's not a ton different. So sometimes that'll be the case with characters. They don't all have to be completely and irrevocably changed, but... Most of your characters need to change in a really visible way, I would argue. It just depends on the story that you're writing. If you have a lot of characters that aren't changing or they feel stale by the end of it because they haven't done much, that's probably a sign that you need to cut them. The next kind of structure is called the eight-point story arc. It is similar to the three acts. It's just taking more steps to get to the same place. It is broken down into a list here on Pimp My Fiction, which I will read for each of the eight points. In order, Pimp My Fiction presents the following points. There's a stasis point, a trigger point, the quest where the protagonist goes out, 
on the quest, obviously. A surprise point that no one expects. A critical choice point where the main character has to make the main character specifically has to make a critical choice that will change the trajectory of the book from the perspective of the reader. A climax point, perhaps a reversal point, that's number seven here, and a resolution. That is the same as a three-act structure. It's just instead of focusing on the actual foundation of the book, instead of saying, okay, stasis, trigger, and quest are going to go in Act 1, surprise and critical choice are going to go in Act 2, climax, reversal, revolution are going to go in Act 3, because that's stereotypically how it would be, it is spelling them out with more sections, which gives you the ability to be a little more flexible. Or if the book you're writing is really friggin' long, a lot of fantasy and science fiction is really friggin' long, you may not want to be constrained by only three acts. It may not be possible to be constrained by only three acts. I started reading an epic fantasy series a little bit ago that the first installment of is upwards of 700 pages, and it's not even Tolkien or anything. So not always will a three-act structure be appropriate for everything. If you are actually physically plotting something out. I can tell you this from personal experience. A three-act structure may not be the best way to do it for you simply because you may end up having too many bullet points in each act. If it gets too cluttery, if it gets too unorganized, then your only choice really is to divide everything into smaller sections. The eight-point story arc can help with that. The easiest way to use the eight-point story arc is just to open up a Google Doc or put in eight different index cards on Scrivener and run through each one, one, stasis, two, trigger, etc., etc. That's the exercise that I'm in the process of doing right now. I might make a short episode to update you on whether that works or not. And then on each card, I'm writing down the summary of what's happening to the characters. So the stasis point, I'm writing down what the status quo of the characters is in the particular world before everything happens. For example, in one project I'm working on, there are characters... One of them, she is going to a military academy. Another one, she is also going to a military academy. One is the good girl, one is the bad girl. And they both start out in a status quo lives where the conflicts are explained and it's obvious things are changing. But they have sort of one more moment in their happy-ish family type situations before everything changes around them. So that's what I'm using as my stasis point, and I'm summarizing that on the first little index card in Scrivener. Then the trigger point is going to be a second, the quest will be the third, and it will go on from there. I'm using the eight-point story arc for that just as an exercise. I already have the project plotted out, but it is easier to understand these different things if you take one book idea that you have and use three or four different methods to plot it out then you know you have a better idea of what method works because you're using the same project and you also get a better understanding technically of how to use them. We'll see what I mean in a bit when we get to our prompt and exercise. The next one is probably the most noted one or the one that's most heard about in podcasts now and just in modern fiction writer talk 
whatever that is. It's the 12-point hero's journey, which is been made famous by Joseph Campbell. He spent years studying cultures and the myths, you know, Greek myth, uh, well, I guess mainly Greek myth, but there's a bunch of different mythologies out there that you can study. And when you do, you start to realize that all of those stories have the same structure. They are the typical Netflix dramas of their day. If you ever go on Netflix and look, you'll notice how so many of the stories, particularly the original content stories, have a similar formula. The characters are similar, the twists are similar, and it's not its not a perfect analogy because unlike myths, a lot of these Netflix shows are not trying to push a certain moral angle or a certain justification for why culture does something, but they do happen to share a similar structure. And you can see that in modern TV shows, modern books, anywhere. Myths had a deliberate structure in order to aid, not only because they were told orally from generation to generation until they were finally written down, but because people expect a certain formula with the entertainment they like. Like, look at police procedurals. Everyone knows how a police procedural goes. I mean, it started with the latest generation of police procedurals, if you want to call it that. Started with NCIS, and then if you look after NCIS... Every single successful police procedural show seemed to be based off of it. Criminal Minds, the characters in Criminal Minds are creepily similar to the characters in NCIS, for example. And other crime shows that came after, or even crime shows that had been around that were looking to sort of reformulate because they want those ratings, they started to create this bank of characters that was the same. The episodes tend to be the same. Part of that is pragmatic because of commercial breaks and stuff, but the episodes tend to be the same so that people who have seen one know what to expect in the other. They're not disappointed in the end. That's the same thing with myths. People who hear one myth want to be able to tell roughly when the lesson in the next myth is going to be and everything else. Back in the day, these were used as bedtime stories. These were used as arguments. These were used as entertainment. So how it was told was very important. And when we're looking at the hero's journey, we're going to see that formula. It's 12 steps, so in the same way as you use an eight-point story arc, which I drew as a story circle in my case, you can use a 12-point story circle for the hero's journey. And I'll go through each one of the 12 steps here. Um, they're all in Pimp My Fiction if you manage to get the book and are following along. Ordinary world is step one. This step refers to the hero's normal life at the start of the journey before the adventure begins. It's your stasis. It's where you're setting up the hero. If they didn't, if nothing happened to them, this is how they would be forever. It's also important for just setting up the world in general. Call to adventure is the next stage from the book. The hero's face was something that makes him begin his adventure. This might be a problem or a challenge he needs to overcome. This is something, you know, the classic example is Star Wars, where everyone's dead when Luke gets home. But you don't have to be that dramatic with it. It could be a corporate espionage story where someone is on their computer and they realize the files for a U.S. government account 
were missing for a total of three minutes, and then when they were put back, they were heavily modified, but the code for how they were modified was erased and rewritten not quite perfectly. Something weird like that can be used as a call to adventure. Because this is a hero's journey, the hero-type character is going to pick up on it. This, is, this works well for a hero-type character because, you know, if I were at work and someone messed with some really important files, not that my day job has any really important files, would I notice it? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I, I, I can't... No, I mean, someone would have to point it out. I would have to have, like, hero helper characters all over the place just pointing stuff out. But when you're writing a main character in the Hero's Jury format, you're probably going to want to make sure that they can spot their call to adventure. Especially because the next point is refusal of the call. That's number three. The hero attempts to refuse the adventure because they are afraid. Which could be the ultimate reason. There could be other reasons. Maybe the guy in the corporate espionage story. Maybe his mom has been sick with cancer for years and his healthcare benefits from his job pay for that and he, there's no way he's risking that just to find out that his company's doing something shady. So it doesn't, that's ultimately fear, right? But you're not just saying, I am afraid and therefore I reject. You don't want to do that. You want to use something else as a motivator cognitively whereas the fear is going to be in the subconscious of the character. For meeting with the mentor, the hero encounters someone who can give him advice, ready him for the journey ahead, might be the head of human resources, who, just because, why not, is another gnarly fisherman who knows something about the company. Maybe it's a company that is selling fish, but there's chemicals in their products and that's what was coded out of the document or something. Uh, that's just an example. I'm not trying to be perfectly specific about it, but... The mentor is going to give the hero advice when the hero goes to HR and meets this mentor character whom they've never met before, never met the head of HR, never had a reason to go in there, and now the mentor is saying, here's how I'm going to help you. Crossing the first threshold, number five. The hero leaves his ordinary world for the first time and crosses the threshold into adventure. Crusty Old Fisherman says, the secret is at the bottom of Lake Michigan, don't question me, and there's a scene where there's a discussion, Hero's like, I'm not going to Lake Michigan, our corporate office is in Frankfurt, you want me to fly to the United States and go to Lake Michigan? Yes, that is exactly what I want you to do. So, eventually, the uh, discussion comes down to the Hero having to cross that first threshold, and they leave the ordinary world, and they go to another world, which is center of Lake Michigan, all foggy and creepy and stuff, where they have to now find whatever it is that the mentor is telling them to go find. Number six, now we're in the middle of this 12-point, uh, I almost said 12-step program, of this 12-point hero's journey. Tests, allies, enemies. The hero learns the rules of his new world. During this time, he endures tests of strength, and will, meets friends, and comes face-to-face -face with foes. I am trying to degender this as I read it, but it's all written with a masculine pronoun from the book, and I don't want to misquote anything, so I apologize for this. Uh, the hero is trying now to learn what's going on. Remember, our main character was somebody from Frankfurt, 
they were a corporate person in this example, an analyst, a desk jockey, if you will. And the desk jockey is not going to be comfortable out in a fishing boat in Lake Michigan wearing one of those stereotypical yellow Gordon's Fisherman jackets, staring into the fog with their mentor. So they're going to have to learn. There's probably going to be a montage where they learn to fish and stuff like that. So they're being tested. Mentors testing them. Here, hold this bait, cast this line, you know, do something with chum. And the, uh, the desk jockey's doing all that and passing the tests in a montage. Number seven, approach. Setbacks occur, sometimes causing the hero to try a new approach or adopt new ideas. So let's say that in the hunt for whatever is at the bottom of this lake, the mentor is like, yeah, I should have mentioned, it's a whale. And our hero goes, what? Why are we hunting a whale? Well, it's not just any whale. It's the whale that, the species of whale that our supposed fish fillets come from. And they feed on some of the chemicals and some of the barnacles at the bottom of the lake. And yeah, we're feeding everybody whale. And it's a huge problem. So the hero is not prepared to catch a whale. And they try a number of different things. They try a net. They try a really large, like a swordfish on a kebab with some veggies. Whale doesn't go for that. They try a bunch of different things. And it doesn't work. And so that's, there's where your try-fail cycles are that we were talking about in the three-act structure. You can put them in here in the approach and in the next step, the ordeal. The hero experiences a major hurdle or obstacle such as a life or death crisis. So often a try-fail cycle is going to be something where someone is going to die or where someone's going to almost die. Maybe the whale tries to capsize their boat. The whale knows what's going on because of course it does. It's a whale. They're not stupid. And tries to capsize them in the middle of Lake Michigan and they have to struggle to right the boat. Maybe there's a massive storm or something like that. It's usually an unexpected obstacle but still related to the chase that the hero is on. So I'm going to go for our example with the whale trying to capsize the boat and, you know, our desk jockey is not the best swimmer has a backpack maybe isn't necessarily athletic or isn't even necessarily responsible loses their xbox one loses their clothes now he's got no entertainment has to actually pay attention to the mentor the whole time you know whatever the case is the uh desk jockey survives you have to have the main character survive in order to continue but all sorts of stuff can happen. The ordeal is pretty open-ended as far as what happens, but it does have to have high stakes. So you have the setbacks occur, and it's possible that they're out of fuel or something like that, and then you have to have high stakes in order for it to be believable. So whatever the setbacks are, they have to be progressive, like in the three-act structure, and the situation has to worsen like in the three-act structure. So you're looking for worsening situations in the approach and the ordeal to raise the stakes for the protagonist. Number nine, reward. After surviving death, the hero earns his reward or accomplishes his goal. Now we're talking about resolving. We're in the final act, and they catch the whale. So your protagonist is going to catch their whale, whatever that whale is, in step nine. That does not necessarily mean the end of everything. Obviously, there's three more steps after it, 
But step nine is where the goal that the hero is after, understanding why the company is hiding this would be an example. You know, that's the whale he's going to catch, and the literal whale, obviously. But in your piece, whatever your whale is, you want it caught or about to be caught by this point. That That's what we're doing here. Step nine is catching the whale. Step 10, the road back, the hero begins the journey back to their ordinary life. This can be tricky because obviously the story's not over yet, so you don't want to just sit the desk jockey back. Maybe he goes back to Frankfurt and he thinks everything is solved and the whale escapes or something. This is where usually there's a twist. 10 through 12 is usually where there's a twist. So if you want to have a twist in your story, this is where you make it. You're not just de-escalating everything. It's not like a cooldown on a treadmill. Something is going to happen here. Otherwise, it would be the 9 or 10 point hero's journey, but it's 12. There's a reason for that. So on the road back, the hero thinks maybe everything is over, and we're coming through to the end of the tunnel. Whale's caught. We're all good. But then, 11, resurrection hero. The hero faces a final test where everything is at stake, and he must use everything he has learned. By this point, stereotypically, crusty old fisherman's dead. Whatever the mentor is, dead, body floating on top of Lake Michigan. Doesn't always have to be that way. There's no hard and fast rule that says the mentor has to die. Mentor can just up and leave. Maybe they feel betrayed. Maybe the hero makes a huge mistake during the ordeal, does something ethically horrible. Maybe it turns out that he's a whale sympathizer and that's enough for the mentor to leave. Whatever it is, the mentor has to be out of the picture and can't help the hero anymore is the key point. Conventionally, that means death does not have to be death. Then your final step, 12, return with elixir. The hero brings his knowledge or the elixir back to the ordinary world where they apply it to help all who remain there. So whatever the hero has learned is central to the hero's journey arc and you can see that in, in popular things. Obviously with Star Wars knowledge is core to the whole Jedi thing. You have talent but you have to learn how to use it. That's like a one-sentence summary of, of much of Star Wars, but at least the original trilogy, the, the one that exists. But for other myths popularly, that's the case in a lot of them. Sometimes it's just stuff that they've learned on their journey, like in the Odyssey, and sometimes it's stuff spiritually that the main character has learned or something that, that changes their soul. For a modern story, because we want a strong character arc, we want something that changes them. So they're coming back and people are realizing that this person has changed. That they're actually like a hero now. That's the important part of the return with the elixir. The elixir could be that the guy is protected by the Whistleblower Act uh, in Germany, whatever that is. And is now head of the company's whale division and makes like half a million euros a year when he used to make like 40,000 euros a year as a desk jockey. So whatever they're coming back, they're coming back with that special sauce that people are going to recognize and go, 
this person has been on a hero's journey. Obviously, they're not going to say that, but it's, it's a positive. Not saying you cannot invert this, and we can talk about that in other episodes, because there are some great examples of inverted hero's journeys where something terrible happens, and when you get to step 12, they're returning, and it's obvious that they're a fallen hero, and it's not good. I love those stories. So I, I'm definitely going to have a couple of examples in future episodes. But those are the three really big ones that you're going to be using to structure the foundations of your story. Now remember, we're not talking about putting stuff in the house yet. We're just building it up. The hero's journey, going out, catching the whale, three-act story arc, good for clearly putting down your ever-worsening situations and really raising the stakes in a simple and understandable way, and your eight-point method, which is a great middle ground between the two. There are many other methods. There's the story circle, which is very similar to the eight-point method, and it's why I drew the eight-point method in a circle, which you can also use. Just Google it. It comes with its own chart, and the charts are great because it gives you a definition of each step in the chart, and then you don't even have to listen to me, which is the objective of a lot of people in my personal life, not to have to listen to me. And there's others that I'm not going to mention here because they're a little more complicated. The three-act structure, the eight-point, and the hero's journey are your basics. I recommend starting out with a three-act structure and then getting more specific as needed. You don't want to write a book based on a hero's journey, and then it turns out, well, your book's not really going to be an epic hero's journey. It's a crime thriller, and it's just it's not going to work. It doesn't. Not every book is right for every structure type. Not every structure type is right for every book. And we want to take that into account when we're plotting. All right, so this has been a really long episode, and I really appreciate you guys listening. Thank you for all your support as we grow this podcast. Let's get to the prompt. So today, instead of writing for 10 minutes for a prompt, I want you to pick a story idea that you have had in a while. If you do not have a story idea, I want you to go to the random generators that we've had in other episodes where you can pick a character name, a couple of objects, things like that to make an outline out of. And I want you to structure that, starting with the three-act story structure. The three-act story structure in our example would be Act 1, guy's a job, learns about bad things happening at job, meets somebody who tells him you have to go out to Lake Michigan and fix it. Act 2 goes out to Lake Michigan, try fail, try fail, try fail, oh my god, almost lost the boat, and borderline between Act 2 and 3, catches the whale, Act 3 goes back, surprise twist, whale gets away, goes, gets the whale, maybe whale's been like kidnapped by the CEO or something, and then gets the whale, exposes the company, becomes head of whale research, and there you go. Then expand that, whatever that story idea is, to eight points. So take the same one, see if you can expand it into eight points. Give yourself a little more detail. You know, start out with the stasis and go all the way through and see if you can expand it out. Then pick a character, your main character, and expand it out along the hero's journey. It may not be that it can work for the hero's journey in every case, but certainly for the 
the first two. You can take anything and put it in a three-act structure, and then any piece of fiction, and then expand it out into the eight-point structure, and then try to expand it out into the hero's journey. What this is going to do is make everyone comfortable with using all three of the basic ones, and because we're using the same story idea, we're focusing less on plotting the actual story and more on filtering it through the different methods. We will share ours on the website and on social media, and you can share yours by emailing us at vippodcasts.com. Until next time, keep writing.